Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 36. And we'll read together the first seven verses of Exodus 36. A stunning passage. And I'll tell you why it's stunning in just a minute if you haven't figured it out or if you don't see why it's stunning in the reading. Exodus 36, the first seven passages, we've come a long way from uh, the first few chapters of Genesis across a millennia, uh, and we are down now to uh, the time of the Exodus, and we read these words, Bezalel and Oholiab, and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing Every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Now you know why it's a stunning passage. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, that this kind of response would be characteristic of my heart. Lord Jesus, Be merciful to me and to us as we come this morning to hear your voice, to hear from you. Take this, your word, by your spirit. Cause it to live for our good and your glory. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I have to say again, for those of you uh, who are here, maybe for the second time, the the first time, the third time, um, I have to say again uh, that we are uh, in a five-week series that outlines some principles of biblical stewardship. And, and if you're here for the first time this morning or, or maybe back for the first time in a while or something like that, I just want to remind us all that this is the first time in over five years at Christ the King that I have preached a series like this. I've preached, I think, two sermons, maybe three, on the subject of stewardship in the course of over five years. But for a number of reasons, which I enumerated last week, um, it has seemed appropriate with encouragement from our elders and interaction with our deacons, uh, it seemed appropriate for us uh, to do this. And, and, and really, the, the main reason for doing it, among the others, that, um, that I mentioned last week is that I've been asked questions about this whole matter of stewardship. 
Uh, people have said, do you have a pledge program? Where are the cards? Do you do a stewardship campaign? Um, is somebody going to come and visit me? Um, how does it work in this church? And then someone said, what about tithing? In fact, I've had uh, more than one person, several people ask me about tithing. What is that all about? It's there in the bulletin every week. Tell me what that means. So these are the kinds of questions I've received, and it's because of these questions, as well as my own deep, um, really heart desire to see us as a church expand our reach, extend our reach, continue and enlarge the work of heralding the gospel from this place, in this community, out into the world and beyond to the nations. It's, it's because of these questions and because of this overarching desire that we're doing this. And what we're doing is laying some foundation stones, putting down some biblical principles that govern how we think about how we use and give away our money. How we think about it, how we use it, and how we think about giving away our money. The aim here is to be biblical. The aim here, as in everything, is to, is to try to have biblical principles shape how we think about these things. Particularly, the use of and the giving away of our money. And the first principle which we talked about last week, which I do believe is embedded, embedded deeply uh, in the whole of the Old Testament and the whole of the Scriptures, uh, something that was uh, reflected and expressed in the giving of the first gift, the gift that Abel gave, the, the first offering that was acceptable to God. The basic principle there is that giving is gratitude to God for His goodness. Giving his gratitude to God for his goodness. That's what Abel did. He he brought the first fruits. He brought the first and the best of the produce of the land. And remember that this is after the fall. Uh, This is after the curse. This is after those those words of of judgment. And and also that first promise that is spoken in Genesis 3.15 that God is going to send a conqueror and this conqueror is going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent and he's going to eradicate evil and exterminate evil from the realm. But God also did speak words of judgment and one of the words of judgment was a curse upon the ground. It's going to be hard for you to extract a livelihood from the ground. You're going to do it in pain and toil, blood, sweat and tears. Mom's childbirth isn't going to be easy anymore. It's going to be filled with pain. Our oldest daughter has no idea what's in store for her in a month. She can read books. She can hear people talk. She has no idea. Amen, moms who have given birth? Life is characterized by pain and suffering and toil and brokenness, and there's a curse. But in the midst of all of that, here is God manifesting his continuing goodness and faithfulness. And Abel, who is the beneficiary of that goodness and faithfulness, brings the first of what God has given to him, the first fruits of the land. He brings it as a response of gratitude and thankfulness to God for what God has given to him. The fast, fattest and the first, the best from his flocks. That's the first principle. Giving is gratitude to God for his goodness. We're actually going to see it again in just a couple of minutes. That's the first principle. But here's the second principle. 
Giving is gratitude to God for His grace. Giving is gratitude to God for His grace. And grace is God's goodness expressed in a very specific twofold way. Let me say it all again. Principle number one, giving is gratitude for God's goodness. Principle number two, giving is gratitude for God's grace. And God's grace is his goodness expressed in a very specific twofold way. A twofold way. What is grace? It is two things, folks. It is not getting what I do deserve. And it is getting what I do not deserve. That's God's grace in its fullest, most comprehensive, and yet simple expression. Grace is not getting what I do deserve, and it is getting what I don't deserve. And there are few passages in the whole of the scriptures that more clearly portray and dramatize the reality of grace than this passage we're looking at here. There are few passages in all of Scripture that more clearly portray and dramatize the grace of God than this passage we're looking at here. In order to know what's going on in chapter 36, verses 2 through 7, we've got to sketch some history. We've got to get us up to the place where we are in verses 2 through 7 of chapter 6. We've got to have some background to understand why it is the people of Israel do something which I have never seen and which none of my buddies in ministry have ever seen and which, to my knowledge, no senior pastor has ever seen. Tell the people to stop. We don't need any more giving. I've never seen it. No leader of ministry has ever seen it. But that's what you see here. And you have to ask the question, why did they do this? And why then was it necessary for the leaders in Israel to tell them to stop? How did we get here? Now in the next couple of hours... In the next 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes, I've got to trace a whole lot of history that gets us to this place and that explains to us why it is these people did what they did. And let's do that by asking a couple of questions. Where did they get all of this stuff? Where did they get all of the... If you look at the end of chapter 5, there is reference made to gold and to silver and to, and to bronze, and to scarlet yarns, and to fine twined linens, and to other fabrics. Where did they get all of this stuff? Where did they get these precious metals? There is reference to, to, to precious stones that need to be cut and shaped and formed by, by skilled stone cutters. Where did they get all of this stuff? Remember, these people are paupers, right? They were slaves. 
Uh, they were they were living in an oppressed environment. They were being exploited and persecuted. They didn't have a lot of money. Where did they get all of this? Well, you have to go back to chapter 12, verses 33 to 36. Let me just read these verses for you. Put them in the context in which they're found, and then move on from there. Chapter 12, verses 33 to 36. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. You understand? You remember what's going on here? Ten plagues. You get to the tenth plague. What happens in the tenth plague? The firstborn in every household from Pharaoh down to the criminal in the dungeon dies on the night of the Passover. The firstborn flock owned by every farmer in Egypt. Firstborn animals across the whole country all die on the Passover night. Everywhere in Egypt except one place. Where is that? Goshen. Not Indiana. Goshen in Egypt where the Israelites because a sacrifice has been made and the blood of the sacrifice has been painted on the doorposts and lintels of the homes and the people who have come under that blood. Does this sound at all familiar? The people who have come under that blood are spared the judgment that falls to the whole of the rest of the nation. People are burying their children in Egypt. And an Israelite comes up to the door and knocks on the door and says, Give me your silver tea set. Give me your diamond rings. Give me your rubies. Give me your emeralds. Give me your gold bullion. And the people in those homes say, I don't care what you want. Take it all. What good is it to me if I'm dead? And they gave them all of this wealth. And it is with this incalculable wealth that these former slaves leave Egypt burdened by this wealth. But here's the operative phrase in what is said in those verses. Verse 36. The Lord gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Lord gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. If you read the account of the first nine plagues, it's very clear that it is very easy for hard-hearted people, even in the face of catastrophe, to become hardened even more. This isn't just a sort of an emotional response 
to a pervasive plague of death. It's very easy for embittered people to become more deeply embittered. It's very easy for hardened people to become more hardened. No, you see, the thing that explains why Israel left with all that wealth is not the pervasive plague of death, but that God gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. You ask the question, Why did they leave with all of that wealth? It is because at the end of the day, God gave it to them. God gave it to them. It wasn't the Egyptians. It did not belong to them. It was God's. And God gave it to them. And he gave it to them in a lavish, lavish manner. See, here's the thing we want to begin to see and try to come to terms with. This God is not a niggardly God. He is not a God who withholds. He is a God who is pleased to be lavish in the way that he gives. He gives in a lavish manner. Can I do this little sidebar again? What is God doing here? He is building a kingdom. That is what he is doing. And he is taking these people from bondage in Egypt where they are nothing and they have nothing in the direction of a promised land that will be a land flowing with milk and honey. And if you read Numbers 13, when the spies go into the land and they come back out of the land with a report from what they found in the land, the text in Numbers 13 says they clipped off One branch of grapes. One bunch of grapes. And so big was that one bunch of grapes that they had to lash it to a pole so that two people could carry it. And they brought pomegranates and figs as well. And they said there are cities in there and there are vineyards in there. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. What is God doing? He's building a kingdom. To have a kingdom, you've got to have four things. You've got to have a king. You've got to have some rules. You've got to have some citizens. And you've got to have a place. You've got to have a land. What you don't have to have to have a kingdom is the fifth thing. You don't have to have a king who is lavish in blessing his people. And in the creation and in the land of Canaan, there is a picture for the people of God of just how lavish and extravagant God is. But always God would remind his people That everything that they are and everything that they have comes from him. Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's a passage you have to read this week. A passage spoken to the Israelites. They're at the end of the 40 years. They're about to enter the land. And before they enter the land, they get a long sermon from God given to them through Moses. And in the midst of that sermon, God reminds them of this. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17. He's saying in the previous verses, 
When you go into this land, you're going to enjoy incalculable blessing. You're going to enjoy abundance. It will be a land flowing with milk and honey. But then in verse 17, God reminds them, reminds them of this. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Beware lest you say that. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Where did they get all this stuff? It came to them from God. God made Israel wealthy, lavishly. Folks, we really do need to remember that this has application to us. It has application to me. It has application to you. Do we see this? Do we see that it is God who gives wealth? It is God who gives abilities to gain wealth. It is God who creates environments in which wealth can be created. Do we understand that? I go to Africa every year. I will tell you, there is a Bill Gates someplace in Tanzania. I will tell you, there is a John David Rockefeller someplace in Tanzania. And I will tell you that someone who is very bright, very gifted, very much a leader, lives in a mud hut in a village of 1,500 people. And it is simply the case that his circumstances, ordained by a providential God, do not allow him to exercise God-given gifts in a particular setting which enable him to accumulate wealth for himself. If Bill Gates is born in Tanzania, he's living on 60 cents a week. Not a portfolio of 60 plus billion dollars. Do we understand this? Everything that I am, everything that I have, originates with God. It is God who gives wealth. It is God who gives the abilities to gain wealth. It is God who creates environments in which wealth can be created. My gifts, my abilities, my circumstances, my environment, all of this is a gift from God. I could be in a very different place. But God, in goodness, in his providence, has so ordered things that I, and I don't say this to be funny, idiot that I am, enjoy incalculable blessing. Not because I'm smart. Not because I'm good. Not because I'm strong. But in large measure, simply because of where I live. And all of that is in the hand of God. Now that explains 
why Israel got wealthy, why they had the stuff to part with when it came time to make offerings and give gifts in order for the sanctuary to be constructed. That tells us how they got the stuff, but it doesn't answer the question why they gave it. It doesn't, does it? And to answer that, we've got to race through seven high water marks that bring us to Exodus 36 and explain why it is these people are so lavish in their giving, why they give so liberally. Seven high water marks. And you're going to have to race with me through this. But you can listen, you can get the CD, listen on your computer, you can hit the pause button, you can make the notes, you can check the texts, but walk with me through the sequence of events that occurred prior to Exodus 36. Exodus 19, event number one, Mount Sinai, where God says to Israel, who had been held captive in bondage, powerless, penniless, helpless and hopeless in Egypt, God says, I brought you to myself through many powerful signs and wonders. I brought you to myself on eagle's wings that you might be for me a treasured possession. That you might be for me a kingdom of priests. Think wedding, folks. Think wedding. Here is the groom bringing his beloved to himself, that he might wed her to himself forever. Think wedding. Think wedding. And here is the second thing. After gathering the people to himself, the second big event, desirous to make them his bride, desirous to make them his treasured possession, separating them from all of the other peoples of the earth, desiring to own them as his own, that he might bless them and prosper them, he enters into covenant with them. And you can read about this in chapters 20 through 31 of Exodus. Moses, together with Joshua and Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, And 70 elders from the people go up into the mountain. And when they're all up there in the mountain, they see God. They see His glory. They sit in His presence. They eat a meal together in His presence. And then Moses goes up into the cloud while the others remain there on the mountain. The 70 elders and Joshua and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. And Moses goes up into the cloud. And what does he receive? He receives from the Lord instruction concerning the tabernacle and the priests. And what is the tabernacle? It is the place where God dwells. God is saying to Moses, through Moses, to the whole nation, I want to dwell with you. I want to live in your presence. I want to be among you. And that instruction as it unfolds across the rest of Exodus and into Leviticus and Numbers, that instruction instructs the people when they camp to put three tribes here and three tribes here and three tribes here and three tribes here. And in the center of it all is the tabernacle. And the glory of God comes down from the mountain and the glory of God moves into to a tent. God has a tent in the midst of the tents. 
He's not like other gods, friends. He's not a God who is remote and distant. He's a God who desires to dwell in the midst of His people, to fellowship with His people, to be close to His people, to inhabit the same space as His people. And the priesthood, the instruction concerning the priests, the high priest Aaron and all of the rest, what is that all about? The priests are the mediators bringing God and His people together. They are the ministers at the wedding. They're the ministers at the wedding. They're the ones who say, do you promise forsaking all others? Do you promise forsaking all others? They are the ones who say, in the midst of that ceremony of reunion, they are the ones who say, I now declare you to be husband and wife. You may kiss your bride and take her and ravish one another in your love. Temple and priests, That's what Moses is getting on that mountain. And then there's the third big event. While Moses and Aaron and the elders are on the mountain, they're up there too long. They're up there too long in the opinion of the people. Aaron comes down. And Joshua comes down and the elders come down and finally Moses and Joshua come down. And what do they find when they come down? Exodus 32, they find the people prostituting themselves with foreign gods. They find the bride committing adultery with another man. And Moses, as he stands in the presence of the people having come down out of the cloud and down from the mountain, witnessing this scene, takes the tablets, which are the marriage certificate, and he slams them to the ground, and they are shattered to bits. The marriage is off. Exodus 32.10, God says, Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them that I may consume them. Is God a mean, nasty, ugly, rotten, self-indulgent, vindictive, vicious God? No. Is God a righteous God? Is God a just God? who simply cannot do, he simply cannot do because he is just and righteous, he cannot do what Gerald Ford did for Richard Nixon. He cannot say, stop the wheels of prosecution, let the guilty go free, if in fact he is guilty. He cannot do that, don't you see? Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them that I may consume them. And then the fourth big event, and if this doesn't loom large and stand huge for you in your thinking about the Old Testament, let me encourage you to reread it so that it can grow large. The fourth big event, Moses first 
intercession. Exodus 32.13 O God, O God, remember Your promise made to Abraham and to Israel. Remember Your promise. Now you have to ask the question here. Did God forget something? Did God forget something? I don't think so. I don't think so. Who is really being tested here? Is God being tested? Is his memory being tested? Is God inclined to forget a promise that he made? And having made a promise, is he inclined to break his promise? I don't think so. What do you think is going on here? I'll tell you what is going on here. Two things are going on here. Number one, God is putting on display for us his resolve to be gracious to his people. And he is using Moses, living at this horizontal level, facing the sin of the people, reflecting upon and contemplating the righteous and just indignation of a just and righteous God against a sinful people. Moses, at this horizontal level, is thinking, God, don't do that. You made a promise. You said you would bless Abraham. You said you would give him a people. You said you would give him a land. What will the nation say? They'll say you brought him out here to crucify and destroy them, to kill them. And your integrity is on the line here. For whose benefit is all of this? Moses and the people. And here's the second thing. What you have in Moses, as I'm sure, must be clear to you, is a picture of Jesus. A picture of Jesus, who is the greater Moses, who intercedes not with a prayer, but who intercedes with the totality of his life so that the wrath of God might not be visited upon those who deserve that wrath. See, that's the first part of grace. The first part of grace is not getting what I do deserve. But Israel deserved was to be judged. But God had made a promise, and you know that promise, if you read Hebrews 13, that promise ultimately is not a promise with Abraham and Isaac and Israel. That promise ultimately is with his own son. The father and the son covenanted together, agreed together that they would redeem a people, that this holy, righteous, and just God would be pleased to visit his wrath, not upon those who deserve it, but upon one who does not deserve it, Jesus, the greater Moses. And God will never forget that promise. And then here's the fifth big event. It is Moses' second intercession. Exodus 33, 12 to 23. We don't have time to read them. Please look at them this week. In fact, may I give you an assignment and ask you to read everything from Exodus 19 through Exodus 36. Here's the fifth big event. Moses' second intercession. In their interaction as Moses is acting the role of high priest, foreshadowing for us, picturing for us what Jesus will do 
God had said, to, in effect, had said to Abram, I won't judge them. I'll send my angel ahead of you, but I myself will not go up with you. Why? Because this is a stiff-necked and stubborn people. And Moses, in his second intercession, says in effect this, if you will not go up with us, then we're not going. If you will not go up with us, I will not go and we will not go. Because, as I've said to you in the past, to go into the promised land without God means not entering the promised land, for God is the promised land. And to possess the blessings of God without possessing God as the principal blessing is to possess no blessing at all. In fact, those blessings become a curse. If you will not go with us, then leave us here. Is it not by your going with us that we are distinct and different from every other people on the earth? It is God in the midst of his people that differentiates and distinguishes his people from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses' second intercession is, in effect, a plea, a prayer, that God would give the people what they don't deserve, which is God himself in their midst. Grace is not getting what I do deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. And God, who is limitless and lavish in grace and mercy, who loves his people with an everlasting love, renews the covenant with them. That is Exodus 34, the renewal of the covenant. God will not judge them, and God will go with them. And the seventh big event in this quick survey of the events that lead up to chapter 6, the seventh big event is the giving of gifts for the tent in which this God of incalculable grace will dwell. Do you see this? Do you see? I, I guess it's the psychology of this. Do you, do you see the soulishness of this? The people respond with lavish gifts because they have experienced a lavish grace. They haven't gotten what they do deserve. God does not judge them because of the work of the intercessor. But not only that, God will not abandon them He'll not remain at a distance. God will move in and take up residence among them. To which notion the response of the people is, let's hurry up. 
let's get this thing built. Let's get this stuff fabricated. Let's get this thing made so that this God of unspeakable grace can move into his tent and dwell in our midst. And so they come. And they pour out their gifts lavishly for the construction of the dwelling place of the God of heaven and earth in all of his glory in their very midst. Giving, especially lavish giving, is a response to a lavish grace. I hope we can see, I hope we understand, I hope and pray that I and we can wrestle with these notions that the greater Moses has come, the greater intermediary, the greater intercessor has come for us so that we do not get what we do deserve. He has come for us so that we might receive what we do not deserve, lavish grace and mercy, the assurance of the presence of God with us as we make our way through this wilderness to the promised land that awaits us, where we will know and enjoy the fullness of God's benediction and blessing for all eternity. And let's make this last point. This thing in which we meet every week is not the temple. Cathedrals built in Europe are not the temple, never have been. Buildings built where people worship, whether a mud hut or a crystal cathedral, are not the temple. You are the temple. You are the temple. You see, we're one step beyond even what Israel enjoyed. But God is pleased not to dwell in houses made with hands. But the God of heaven and earth is pleased to dwell in human hearts, to dwell in the midst of his people. And God is pleased to engage his people. And here the metaphors get mixed a bit. God is is pleased to engage his people, employing his people who are the temple to build them and deepen them and beautify them and strengthen them and create such a radiance about them that he is glorified. He is pleased to do that work in his temple. That's what we call sanctification, to be just sort of banal by comparison. God beautifying his people, building his people, deepening them in in their affection for Jesus Christ. That's what happens in the temple. That's what Jesus, the great high priest, does in the midst of his temple. He beautifies it. He strengthens it. He builds it. And he enlarges it. He makes it bigger. He gathers more and more people in it. He is an infinitely gracious God. And he needs a big place to live in. And the place he is building is a temple made up of living stones gathered from every race and every nation and every tribe and every tongue that He might dwell in them and be with them forever.
the greater Moses has come. And we are the greater temple. And God in lavish grace and mercy. Not giving us what we do deserve. Giving us himself, which we do not, do not and never could deserve. Is pleased to be for us what he was for Israel. A presence with them across the days of their lives until he brings them safely, finally, home. Principle number one, giving is gratitude for God's goodness. Principle number two, giving is gratitude for God's unspeakable grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Thank you that you dwell in our midst. Thank you that you have taken up residence in our hearts. Thank you that you are relentless both in beautifying what you already occupy and enlarging what you occupy so that this glorious temple might in fact be a people gathered from every race and nation and tribe and tongue all to the praise of your Father and of yourself and of the glorious Holy Spirit. We praise you for this grace in your name. Amen.